0: Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.
1: I'm Anish Shroff and I'm chopping it up with Buck.
2: So, got to bring back like I had moves on here, started thinking, I got to get Anish on. You know, chopping it up with Buck came about sitting around during COVID saying, let me call my boys, and we just talk. So, Bilotti's been on, Ludes has been on, I'm other guys. Kevin Carter, but Anish Shroff, how you doing, man? I'm good, Buck.
1: Good to finally uh, get this coveted invite. <laughs>
2: but tell me how you started your progression from Bloomberg, New Jersey, or uh, excuse me, Bloomfield, New Jersey, into broadcasting, and how did all come about?
1: Yeah, well, you know, um, not all of us can be, uh, you know, six-foot-five tight ends in the NFL, right? (laughs) Um, Or or center field for the Yankees or or point guard for the Knicks. So, um, yeah, the dream took a detour. Um, But I think at a young age, I always had a passion for sports, and I always enjoyed the storytelling. Um, I told the story a lot. You know, we never had cable as a kid. So I'd listen to a lot of radio and and you're forced to use your imagination. You're forced to picture things. And then when I did watch sports on TV, it was a lot of national broadcast. And, you know, one of the things that I remember struck me when I was, when I was young was the old NBA on NBC. And I would always try to get to the TV. This is pre DVR, obviously, for that Bob Costas game open where he really sets the scene yeah, and he, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you have the images and, and he would make the words come alive with, with what you're yeah. saying on screen. And I always thought, man, what a great way of, of just telling a story and bringing it into a broadcast, making it feel big. And, you know, I think as a kid, you like that because it gave you the goosebumps, but the older I got, and I, as I got through high school, you know, you, you started to appreciate the art, behind it yeah yeah yeah. when I went to college you know those are the things that were implanted in your head and so that's where the seeds really started and you know the other interesting thing about you your parents are from Mumbai your dad is a, a,
2: a professional photographer so tell me about that because that's that's really interesting
1: yeah and I got a lot from him because when I was a kid to make a few extra bucks I would go work weekends with him yeah. um he would go shoot a wedding he used to have his own photo studio he started one of the uh, first 100 mini labs in the okay. country that's yeah. developed the film the one hour photo he developed his own stuff he used to make his own filters and um really had a, a knack and a skill and, and you know he's been featured in galleries and all that kind of stuff and then you know he kind of got into the wedding business just because you know it was a way to make a few extra bucks on weekends and i would you know, go help him out, and I would hold the light, and And the one thing that I noticed was, you know, it's, it's sort of the same in our business, right? Our viewers, our listeners, they see the final product, mm-hmm. but they sometimes see what goes into it. It's the old iceberg yeah. analogy. We see the yeah. <laughs> we <Yeah>. don't <laughs> don't And I remember, you know, he would get me up early, and I'm like, Dad, you know, this thing doesn't start until 1 o'clock. Why are you getting there at 7 a.m.? But that created a type of work ethic in me where I would see what he would do. He would get there at 7 a.m. He had all his equipment, and he would just kind of go in and scout. Say, okay,
0: mm.
1: what's going on here? Are we set up the light here? Okay, they're going to walk in this way. And yeah. we're picturing everything before it happens. Mm-hmm. And then would set everything up, and then things would happen. But it also allowed him a chance when things went in a different direction and didn't go as planned to adapt and adjust. Because mentally, he would just prepare for different scenarios. Oh well, you now the forecast didn't call for rain, but now it's going to rain. What am I going to do? Okay, this is a <laughs> indoors. If we need to take portrait pictures, we can take it here. There's good natural lighting. You know, I'll bring this. I'll bring this. Always having a backup plan. So I kind of got that him, and then just this idea of thinking visually, thinking in a way where just because everybody is going right doesn't mean you need to go right sometimes the best picture Mm. is left and sometimes like why is he going out here and then I'd see the picture at the end oh okay I see what you did there right Uh, shooting things in a different way shooting it from your back shooting it through trees Mm. finding different ways to crop the picture And so, you know, I was into photography, but never at the level that he was. And so for me, it was always, all right, how can I do this with a thousand words, (laughs) right? Like (laughs) And I wanted to do it with a thousand words. And it was, how can we find a different way to get into this game? How can we find a different way to tell the story? One of my biggest pet peeves as a broadcast, and you've probably been a part of this, is when you come on the air and someone says to the analyst, well, hey, Buck. Uh, yeah, this should be one heck of a game. Like, the cop out—that's like just taking a photo. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you know, the other thing I learned from him—this was a lesson, especially early in my career—his big pet peeve from clients was when they would ask what camera he would use. <laughs> like, you can have the best camera in the world, but if you're not a photographer or you can't see what you're supposed to see, or you see things a certain way, what, what difference does it make? Yeah. so he would say, yeah. well, you're not paying for my camera. If you want a great camera, go buy one or have your uncle buy one and take your pictures. <laughs> you're paying me for how I see through the camera.
2: Well, and you talk about more with less. So I, I've watched your Syracuse guys because I've called plenty of games there, right? Yes. I think you guys all go to W-A-E-R. Is that the – that- Yeah. yeah. yeah football, basketball and lacrosse. We'll talk football and basketball because you know Syracuse had had some down years but they had been very strong before you got had gotten there. but it's interesting when during your time you became a really proficient person and got into the nuances with lacrosse because that's kind of how I saw you I was like oh this guy's really good and he's excitable before I knew you and you know before I knew really about you I knew you love lacrosse. Tell me about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, so lacrosse was a foreign language to me when I got to college. And I wanted to do football, and I wanted to do basketball. And so at WAER, we were told, okay, you want to do those two? Learn lacrosse. <laughs> 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 you got to do that first. Uh, so yeah. I remember my freshman year, I bought this Bob Scott book. He's a former Johns Hopkins coach, and it's essentially lacrosse for dummies before they had yeah. the subject for dummies series. So I got that book, and I, and I have it on my bookshelf behind me. And a few years ago, leafing through it, some of the things that I underlined, you know, this is how many players on the field. This is the the (laughs) side. I I literally didn't know anything. And then in New York, we also had a vibrant high school lacrosse scene. And it was covered by local news and the local TV stations, um, almost like you would cover high school football in the fall. And a lot of those players would go play at Syracuse or at big Division One schools. So I'd go to those high school games with a tape recorder, do practice tapes. But probably the biggest thing, we had a player when I was there by the name of Mikey Powell. Mm-hmm. He is on the Rushmore of College of Lacrosse. If you watch his highlight reel, you know, it's a cross-section of Pete Maravich and Wayne Gretzky, just a magician. Yeah. And he's one of the three or four greatest players in the history of College of Lacrosse. His four years coincided with mine. So you're watching this transcendent talent for four years up close. So you go from covering the sport because you have to. And then after four years, you're walking away as a true fan of the sport. Because again, you got to watch an all time talent. You know, you bring up a
2: really good point. I grew up in Texas, so I didn't know about lacrosse. I knew about Jim Brown, but I knew about lacrosse before then studying Native American history. And so that was always one of those things that I was a guy that now when I watch lacrosse, or go see it, see the high school. I love it. I mean, I love the game. I love the physicality. But I think, you know, you, you can attest to this from being a Syracuse. There's talk that Jim Brown was probably one of the greatest lacrosse players of all time, along with Mikey Powell. And probably could have been if it was a pro uh, lacrosse league
1: would have been, you know, a, a Hall of Famer in that as well. Well, if you listen to Jim Brown, he often says lacrosse was his first love. You know that was yeah. his favorite sport, and he used to have a move that is now outlawed, where he would pin the stick against his chest and yeah. literally run through people. They called that a bull dodge, and they said you can't, you can't do that. Anymore. Uh, that sounds like a rodeo term down in Texas. <laughs> I tell you what, there's a great story in uh, Dick Shapp's memoir. Okay, Dick played goalie at Cornell, and he talks about facing Jim Brown when Cornell played Syracuse, and he said the guy had trees like telephone poles. But you never saw telephone poles move like that. And was a game where he stopped a couple of shots, but he didn't see them. <laughs> uh, you know, Jim Brown is sort of like it's hard to call him the babe Ruth of lacrosse because the sport wasn't what it later became. Yeah. But he's yeah. almost like the Paul Bunyan of Lacrosse. He's this larger yeah. than yeah. life tall tale. Yeah. I I I mean I almost
2: equated for me from a Negro League baseball player, Josh, Josh. Gibson. We all we always talk about Josh Gibson. And whenever I go to Washington, I gotta go pay homage because I've heard Buck O'Neill talk about the only guy that he's ever heard the ball sound like that off the bat was Bo Jackson. Yeah and Gibson. And just just my grandfather got to see him play. So I'd always ask him because I, you know, growing up a lefty, a power hitter, he was a right-hander but I was always intrigued by that. And I, I kind of look at Jim Brown as that same kind of, you know, the stories you hear, you know, you don't have any, a lot of footage of him playing lacrosse, but you knew he was great. <laughs>
1: yeah. And you didn't have right the statistics. Like you hear Josh Gibson hit 800 home runs. And yeah. You yeah. Josh Gibson and Buck Winter. That was Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig for the home. Yeah. And um, yeah, there is a little bit of that mythology. And it's funny you bring up the Negro leagues because, you know, I, I wish that we could have almost a, a definitive chronicle of some of those guys, because all you do is you hear the stories, right? Like cool Papa Bell, he was so yeah, fast, yeah. <laughs> Right? I mean, was he fast as Ricky Henderson? Was he fast? Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it, it's part of this chapter of American history and American sports history that yeah, um, I've long been fascinated by, and it's just kind of it, it's been buried under the surface for so long.
2: Yeah, I've gotten to know Dusty Baker well over the years, and uh, Buck O'Neill was the one that I got to meet at Circle City Classic. Spent a little bit of time with him, and he was the the keeper of the Negro League stories, and he was a great storyteller as well. But he just he used to just tell me some of the great things about the games that actually took place between them the major league teams and the Negro league teams. And he said, it was very competitive. We beat them a lot was what he would yeah. always say. And I think some of those guys didn't want to admit it, but it was, it was such a competitive thing that I, I would love like you to just be, be able to be a fly on the wall and watch those things happen. <laughs> I mean,
1: imagine if we could have seen Satchel Paige in his life. Right. We got uh, Satchel Paige when he was old, he was in his forties and he yeah. was field fielding on Mickey Mantle.
2: From a book perspective. What what books kind of made you start thinking of sports? Because you always throw those little nuggets in. I don't. Some of the guys that you might do things with it goes over the head. It didn't go over my head. I I, I was watching you do that.
1: <laughs> uh, well, it's funny. There there was a book that I read years ago. It was called Only the Ball Was White on the Negro Leagues, which is okay. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a great book. Great book. Tremendous, and it got into some of those stories and then some of the mythology and trying to separate a little bit of fact from fiction, um, mm. but the 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 sports books that hit home for me uh one is boys of summer by Roger Kahn on the Brooklyn Dodgers and you know the, the great thing about that book is it is it's in two parts and the first part is you know the boys of summer in all their glory you know Jackie Robinson and Pee Wee Reese and Joe Black and Carl Erskine and then Roger Kahn revisits the boys of summer in the autumn of their lives and um it's a very human story. You know, we find out what happened to Jackie Robinson and how his son died and Roy Campanella losing his legs and um, you know, different stories of success and tragedy and triumph um, and really this battle of the human spirit, but also um, a portrait of your heroes as not superhuman, right? Yeah. You know, yeah when they're playing and, and they can do no wrong. And, and, you know, you think of a Kobe Bryant, right? Invincible. And now he's yeah. gone. So, there was a lot of that in that book. Um, another one that I loved was Friday night lights. Was oh, great movie. book. Great book. Yeah. Odessa, Permian, yeah. uh, Biscuit, which is more than just the story of a horse. Yeah. It was, yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, one of the single best books I've ever read, Laura Hillenbrand's attention to detail on the way she's able to write nonfiction like fiction. You know, those are some mm-hmm. that always kind of struck me. Um, sports books that I just thought were, you know, they're sports stories, but but they're life stories.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. Boys in the
2: Boat was another one that I read. Um, I was, you know, I just started during COVID. I had a chance to read a lot more, but there were other things. But you just said something that triggered me. Um, Earl Campbell was my idol growing up. You know, he—I'd see him work out. I got to know some of the Oilers, but I would—he I, I, was almost like our god as a Houston Oilers fan. And now to see him you know, as he's aged, just the wear and tear of his body, like all of us at some point that happened. But it, I can remember going to the hill in Houston. Uh, it was this great workout hill that they would just try to kill you. 70 yards straight up turf uh, in the heat of Houston summers. Guys would go out there a little bit hungover from hanging out the night before and Tom Williams would, would work them to death. I saw Earl hit this hill so hard. Anisha was out, after that, I was like, okay, that is what it's going to take for me to get to that level that's just that's just the entry into the game and then he comes down and his, his thighs are the size of you know me and my buddies combined <laughs> but he's hey, what's up young blood I'm like, oh. and, and that in and that moment i was like okay this is what it's gonna take to get there right <laughs> so you had all of the great guys in front of you at at syracuse you got you also was on, you are on the uh, reality show uh what was it um e- <laughs> the espn reality show it wasn't a break for you but it was it was a uh, dream job, right? So yeah, second season of that. Just, just tell me about the progression and how you ended up getting to ESPN News and all the things you had to do to get to that level.
1: Yeah, it's funny. So you know, dream job. I didn't win. Um, yeah, it was a final three. Yeah, and there were some opportunities after that, and I was very cautious about mm-hmm. what I would take. And there were some things where. What looked good in the short term may not have been beneficial in the, in the long term. And I was 22 years old. I got a little bit of a taste. And I remember, you know, people thought I was crazy because um, I applied to Yakima, Washington. And I got a job oh in Yakima, Market, yeah. Market 126. And they're like, you're not going to try to cap up this dream job thing. And I go, no. I said, you know, that gave me, you know, a rough sketch of, I think, what it takes and mm. what ESPN might be looking for one day, but I need uh, to go to a place where I can get the reps I won, I was not ready, and I knew yeah, that. yeah. That yeah. Was I, I mean, I, I just knew that I was 22 years old. I was right out of college. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready for that seat, and I and I had to go to a place where I could pay my dues. How, but I hey, Anish, how hard was it for you to say that though? Because that's hard to do, or just
2: really know that you're not ready. Because at 22, 23 i 'm in the league right I'm, I'm playing pro football i'm i'm the guy even though i might not be ready that, that's uh what made you make that mature decision or just that thought of i'm not ready to do this yet
1: you know because I, I didn't want to be yeah. some flash to the pan i didn't want to have an opportunity and then disappear um yeah, yeah. it's serious they teach you a first impression is a lasting impression. Yeah. And you go to yeah. ESPN and, and you're not ready. You're not going to last. And then it's mm-hmm. incredibly difficult to maybe land on your feet somewhere else. Yeah. And you may get back there. And you've seen that happen with certain people, right? And mm-hmm. all of a sudden they're put into a role or they're put into a position where you know it's it's frankly too much. And I, I wanted to go to a place where I said, you yeah, know, this is a 20 year decision. I want to go to a place where I can work work on my craft, experiment. Um, if I fail and if I don't succeed, I can at least come back to the drawing board and say, okay, what did I do wrong? How can I get better? And that was the biggest thing. And I went to Yakima and I got to not only do my own sportscast at five and six o'clock, I was writing, producing, logging my footage, shooting my video, doing my own live shot. And it, I basically did every job in the business, in, in the man sports department, in, in this bureau, and I was there for almost two years, and I walked away essentially like a minor leaguer would. Maybe after yeah. getting out of play, and says, "You know what? I learned how to hit a curveball."
2: Yeah, you you were almost like Malcolm Gladwell' ten thousand hour rule, right? I mean, some people look at that as wrong, but I I really do think if you have the reps and you understand, like the high school games I did for almost what one hundred and fifty bucks, uh, the, the the little college games that people don't watch, but then they see years. Of, oh, you were doing that? Yeah, I mean. When, when they see you make it, they're like, did you,
1: how, how did you get there so quick? I'm like, man, it, it wasn't quick. I put in some time. <laughs> that, was a, that was a job that paid $20,000 a year my first year uh-huh. there. And I lived in this one-bedroom apartment in a rough part of town, and rent was about 400 bucks a month. And for the first, I don't know, three, four months, I could not afford a mattress, so I slept on a futon.
2: Oh, man. Yeah. Well, But you remember those times. So as you progress and now you move from ESPNU to ESPN, getting bigger profile games, you know, just tell me what that when you because I, I often look back at how where I came from, not where I'm at, because that keeps me hungry, what keeps you hungry and thriving now that you're the Carolina Panthers. Play by play voice I mean that that's a you know you've had some really nice progressions along the way in your journey. Talk a little
1: bit about that. you know, I got to ESPN when I was still in my twenties my mid twenties, and I'm sure at that point in my career, I was really able to understand what that meant, um, appreciate it enough. you know you're always in that mode in your twenties you're grinding. You're thinking, what's ahead? It's very hard to stay present. Forget about looking back and reflecting. We're just <laughs> we're just not there yet from a maturity level. I still had some growing up to do. Um, when this Panthers came about, there was a lot of reflection, a lot of humility, a lot of attitude, a lot of thinking about the people who helped me get here, a lot of thinking about Bloomfield, New Jersey, where this journey yeah. started. And, yeah. oh my God, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting in that last interview with, you know, a a billionaire owner, like kids from Bloomfield, New Jersey. Don't do that. Um, (laughs) There was a very much of a pinch me moment. Is is this happening? How how is this guy whose you know, parents came here as immigrants, my dad, $6 in his pocket. You know, we didn't, you know, we weren't, uh, I always tell people like I went to Syracuse, but I wasn't like a lot of the Syracuse kids. And yeah. Yeah. Over a 1986 Chevy Nova when I was in college, um, you know, we didn't have a ton. And you're, you're just like, man, how did, how did I get here? And and you're yeah. really appreciative of, of that entire odyssey. So I've yeah. been more reflective now um, than I probably was when I started at ESPN. <laughs> I got to ask you,
2: you know, we were talking <laughs> before, <laughs> Your
1: daughter, I, I
2: remember when she was born, man. She she got a love of a jersey number. Is it four? What 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 is that story? Talk to me about it.
1: Um, we we got her a Panthers jersey with number four. And okay, uh, what number do you want? She goes four. Why do you want four? Well, that's how old I am. So there, there, was, <laughs> there wasn't anything more behind it than that. That's why she wanted four because she's four years old. And I said, you know, you're still gonna have this jersey when you're five. And she goes, I know. But I'm four right now, so I'm hoping we're not buying her a different jersey every year.
2: <laughs> now, when you when you were coming back after that interview, you, sometimes you know when you have great interviews, and you get home and you're talking to your wife, who's a marathoner. You know, you, you know. I can remember when you guys got were engaged and now married, so I, I love that. But when you came home and you you started talking to her, what was the what was the conversation? Did you know you had that that Did you crush it, or were you still unsure when you got back home?
1: Yeah, you know, I wasn't sure. Um, I thought I had I knew that was the last interview. I felt really good after the second interview. Um, But that last interview, uh, I honestly had no idea. I felt I had as good a shot as anybody. But, Mm -hmm. again, you never know. And when you've been in my shoes, um, you know, I've been turned down before for things that have been just out of my control, like my name. Um, yeah. I, years ago, I was up for a job in the Midwest in local news, and they said, "We love your stuff. We love the tape. We think you're good." Okay, so what's the problem? And, and it was the sports director who, you know, told me in confidence he wanted to hire me. And he said, "I wish I could, but my news director won't let me because your name is too," heavy. and yeah. you know, all mm-hmm. that stuff starts to cross your mind. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. You're never sure yeah. how that's going to play, and you know, I'm thankful that. You know, for the Panthers, they looked at my resume, they looked at my body of work, and they looked at my credentials. Um, but you're just never sure when, um, you know, you've traveled the path I have.
2: Hey, I, I totally understand that. I mean, it was, when I saw you come in, I'm like, they got two Brown brothers on set tonight. We're going to tear it up. And, you know, I mean, seriously, because back in the day, there never was that. It was. Maybe one of me, but it was always the other guys. So it was always cool to have different guys, different flavor, different things. And I think that's the part that I always love about sports, because you can sit, you can go almost anywhere and it neutralizes a lot of things. There's still some, some knuckleheads, some people that are just stupid. But for the most part, when you sit and watch sports, it kind of levels the table. You can talk. I, I've been in locker rooms with guys I couldn't stand. Our politics were totally different. But we had to work together to make things happen.
1: And, you know, that's sort of been the appeal of this job for me with the Panthers beyond just doing play by play. Yeah. Yeah. There is a community engagement component as the voice of the team. And when you look at everybody, you got to say, hey, you're going to have male and female. You're going to. Mm -hmm. Political beliefs all across the spectrum, you're going to have race and religion all across the spectrum, but you know what on sunday we can all get together and unite under the banner of keep pounding we can unite they black and blue and silver and white right yeah. we, we can yeah we can unite we can find some ground and things are so divided right now and we actively seek out fault lines i mean there are very real fault lines in our world that our society yeah. also others that we actively seek out just to further divide ourselves and i think always feel there's a healing power in sports right we can we can Mm. you know you want to hate somebody hate the Buccaneers hate the (laughs) yeah
2: yeah Uh, and
1: and so I actually you know for me that was a, a big part of it let's let's just try to bring people together on Sundays and hopefully you know if we can bleed that into a couple of extra days of the week we've made some real progress well, hey, man, we're going to head
2: to the two-minute warning. I'm going to get you out of here with some fun. I'm going to let you try to march down the field. You wanted to play quarterback growing up if you are a tennis guy. So let's see you march down the field, hit the tight end and stride. Okay, so what was your favorite food to dip, a Duke's Mayo Bowl?
1: Uh, good, hands down. Uh, why was that? Well, I mean, really by default, the donut – and the mayo did not go well together. The Oreo and the mayo did not start off well, had an okay aftertaste. PB&J <laughs> double dip. So by default, that was the best of the three.
2: And you let Golik talk you into a lot of that. So that's D Lyman, right? <laughs> and he, was, he was trying to do a whole game. I was watching you guys. I was cracking up.
1: <laughs> that dude has one of the most insane diets of all time. And I use the word diet loosely. I mean, on the road, <laughs> Guy when we were in Starkville and at Ole Miss gas station chicken on a stick in Mississippi. Yeah, don't ever go to. I've never seen a human being scarf down food faster. I'm like, dude, nobody's taking your food away. We'd be (laughs) jumbling it into his mouth like he's never had a meal before. I go. You know, your dad was Mike Golick Sr. You lived a pretty charmed life, and he, and he eats like he's Oliver Twist. <laughs> <It's something laughs>
2: well, we're marching down the Nice little completion there. What do tasty cakes mean to you? <laughs> tasty
1: cakes. You know, tasty cakes is a <laughs> silly thing. I'm a North Jersey guy, but we had a lot of tasty cakes uh, when I grew up in New Jersey. So that reminds me of home.
2: Oh, okay. All right. That's good. Uh, were you terrified or fearless when swimming with sharks?
1: Oh my god! I mean, I, I'm I'm legitimately surprised I didn't soil my pants. I can't, I can't, <laughs> I can't swim. And our producer had this idea to put us in a shark tank. And I remember I'm holding on to this thing, and we have a couple of other colleagues on the other side. Um, our sideline reporter Chris Budden is on the other side of me with the you know uh, the diver in the middle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it was hilarious. Like I'm shaking. And I see these. I mean, these are real live sharks and I can't swim and I'm holding on. I'm like bringing my head over the water and like, you know, and I'm not going to drown. I got all the things on me, but I I'm, I'm petrified of deep water. And now you throw sharks in there. I mean, come on.
2: Who, who, who did it with you, Chris button? And was was it Golic or? Who, who, uh, yeah. it, was
1: our, it was our old analyst. Yeah.
2: OK. Yeah, that's great. And the thing about it, man. I've never done that. I've done a lot of things, but I heard that's the intensity level of that I,
1: off the chart. I mean, it was in a controlled environment. We were in an aquarium. I am telling you, I was petrified. I was legitimately shaking. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Who's your favorite athlete of all time Sport? sports?
1: Oh, it's a great question. Um, you know, you, you default to Michael Jordan just because... Again, I'm always into the story and there was such a mythology to his story, uh, but I would say probably, mm-hmm. you know, a toss up between Michael Jordan and Don Mattingly, those two.
2: Okay, cool. You're getting down the field, you're marching there. Will Coach K's record ever be broken? For career wins? Yes.
1: Uh, if Jim Beheim coaches long enough, yeah, I do think so. <laughs> yeah.
2: That's why I had to ask you that. I knew you were the Syracuse guy in there. Do you think, you, you think knowing Coach Beheim like you do and spend the time there, you, you think he'll stick around
1: as long as he can to break that record?
2: Because he's competitive as hell, too. I
1: like both of them. 76, 77 years old, there doesn't seem to be an end in sight. It wouldn't surprise me, honestly. I mean, I, if I were to bet, I would say Yes.
2: Okay. All right. Well, we scored a touchdown, got it done. Anisha, hey, man, I really appreciate this. It. It's been good. We got to do it again, and we'll do it to be somewhere and, and sitting down and sitting across from each other yeah. I
1: appreciate it, Buck. Pleasure is always my
2: friend. All right, man. Thanks a lot for coming on to chop this episode of Chopping It Up with Buck.